We're looking at Luke 18 this morning, and I want to uh, just share with you when I realized that, uh, that the home groups that began this week, uh, when I realized on like Wednesday or Tuesday, I think, oh, the home groups are studying Luke 18 also, I got a little, uh, I got a little miffed, you know, I'm like, oh man, we're going to look at the, at the same passage that I'm, I'm preaching on this Sunday, all the home groups are going to look at it this week, and then, you know, they're all going to be like bored to tears because they're already kind of know whatever it was I was going to say today. And, uh, and then I realized, no, that's just the Holy Spirit kind of putting uh, and aligning things so that there is a, a comprehensiveness and a, and a direction here. How many of you were in a home group this past week for the Luke 18? That's awesome. Okay. Hey, um, by the way, on, in your insert, there's a list of all the home groups that are meeting this, uh, this, during this campaign. So there's four more weeks, and this is a great opportunity, especially if a home group is a little bit, you know, I don't know, going to somebody's house, you know, that feels uncomfortable, and, uh, you know, I'd just rather be home or, or whatever. I want to just say uh, these, these home groups can bear a lot of fruit, and I get it. Maybe you don't want to commit to a whole fall or, or an entire semester if it's a new thing for you, but hey, just for the next four weeks, it's a low risk and potentially very high yield kind of thing as you build relationships, as you just kind of can unwind together. Uh, look at God's word, pray for each other, enjoy some time together. So uh, consider a home group if you're not already doing one. Um, all right, so, so we're in Luke 18 and we're studying this passage that I love. Um, I, I picked it intentionally because I just keep going back to it for the heart of the gospel. And here Jesus is teaching, and, and we're told uh, in verse 9, and, and we'll read it in just a second, just I want you to pick up on who the audience is. Uh, Luke tells us who Jesus has in mind as he shares these verses. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 9 through 14 in Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me pray for us. We ask for you to humble our hearts this morning by the work of your Holy Spirit, that you might lift us up and exalt us in Christ, exalt us in the, the righteousness that is ours by faith in him, exalt us in the joy that is ours by being loved, uh, by you, and we pray that in all of these ways, 
you would be at work to change our hearts and make us as generous as you are. And Lord, fill us with blessings so that we can pour out blessing uh, to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, This is a great parable. It's, It's pretty straightforward. It's it's, it's simple to understand. Uh, it's very challenging to apply. Uh, and you've got two guys, uh, two men who go up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. One's, you know, looked very, very highly upon, very well respected in that first century community. The others looked down upon and nobody likes him. Um, and so there's some things they have that are similar and some things they have that are drastically different. Uh, a couple of similarities just to note. They're both going to the temple. They're both going to the temple because they want something. Um, they are at the temple because they are in pursuit of access to God. They want a connection with God. Uh, they want to come away blessed by God. And they're going to the temple for the same reason I believe that each one of us have come to church today, whether you got up out of bed this morning and said, I can't wait to get to church to have access to God, to be blessed by God, to be sent out with his promises over me, or whether you are on autopilot. But I guarantee you there's a reason why you're here. And it has something to do with just that connection to God. You, you want to know that you have his favor. You want him to bless you. And I believe that's what these two men have in common as Jesus, you know, gives us this story. It's a parable. Um, And they're both trying to get access to God. They're both going to the temple. They're both praying. And yet you see their prayers are radically different. They're they're different in tone. They're they're different in content. Um, They're different in posture, all these different things. Let's look at the Pharisee first. And then we're going to look at the tax collector make a couple of observations about prayer. So in verse 11, the Pharisee is standing by himself and he's praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, some of your translations read robbers. Uh, I'm not like the unjust or evildoers or some translations, renderings, um, adulterers, or even like this. And, you know, I kind of want to say with a sneer, I don't know what tone, Jesus, you know, used as he, as he spoke this parable, but, you know, you can imagine the, 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 um, the arrogance, the pride, uh, the, the self-inflicted uh, tone that the Pharisee uses as he mentions even like this tax collector. What's he doing here? You know, why is he even here? Disgracing our temple, disgracing this holy place with his, with his sin. Um, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's interesting. Um, two things to note. This is, this is a Thanksgiving. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And um, it's kind of a prayer to himself. I, I know our ESV renders uh, the verse 11 that he's standing by himself. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to translate the original, you know, language. But I, uh, I think the NIV and other translations are, are um, well, their rendering is just as valid, but I think it actually gets more to the, the heart of the contrast that's going on here between these two men. And so I prefer 
the, the other translation that reads like this. And hear, hear how this puts a different spin on it. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Or you can even translate it, prayed to himself. I mean, Jesus is even putting this thought in his hearer's mind, our minds. Who is he even praying to? Is this just sort of talking to himself, affirming himself, all of the good spiritual things that are going on in his life? A very self-congratulatory kind of prayer that, um, yeah, it's a prayer and it's sort of disguised as something that's devotional and directed to God, but it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with himself. It's, now, um, I say that and I want to I pause because it's, it's easy for us to, uh, to look at the, the speck in his eye and forget the plank in our eye. Uh, it's easy to judge the Pharisee. He comes across as smug. He comes across as arrogant. He comes across as judgmental. Um, and we're used, to, we're used to looking at the Pharisees in the New Testament and the Gospels as wearing the black hats because if you've been around church, you know that when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, generally it's a warning or it's some kind of you know, um, corrective thing for something they're doing wrong. Um, and, and that the tax collector, you know, we know, all right, he's the good guy in this parable, but Jesus' original audience, that's not how they looked at these two people in this parable. In fact, if you're new to church, if you're new to, to the Christianity in the New Testament, you probably have an advantage uh, in interpreting or understanding the point of this parable. The Pharisee, and, and to those who are hearing this parable from Jesus firsthand, the Pharisee is the respectable good guy. He's got his act together. He's very religious. Uh, he's very conscientious about his law keeping. Uh, it's a good thing to not commit adultery. It's a good thing not to steal or extort. It's a good thing not to do evil. Uh, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing to fast. This guy fasts twice a week. When's the last time any of us fasted? You know, my guess is he surpasses, you know, you and me and his piety when it comes to fasting. He says he tithes a tenth of all that I get, a tenth of everything that he gets. Um, and how many of us are that scrupulous with the tithe? First of all, how many tithe? You know, 10%. And, and then when you look at the Pharisee, he's saying he doesn't just tithe 10%, but that he looks at every single thing that comes in all, and, and on the front end before taxes and looking at every little thing that could, could be considered income in some way, just to check the box, he tithes a tenth of all that, that, that he gets. And, you know, who here is there? Um, so before we, we, we really jump to judgment on the Pharisee, let's, let's, let's at least confess the fact that Jesus is intentionally putting somebody whose spiritual qualifications are way up here. He, he's making that kind of contrast for us to consider. When, uh, when you look at the Pharisee, by the way, I think Jesus has Psalm 50, in, in his mind, the Pharisee's giving a prayer of thanksgiving. 
Psalm 50, at the end of that psalm, says, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. But to the wicked person, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with the adulterers. You use your mouth for evil to harness and, and harness your tongue to deceit. So, you know, here in Psalm 50, um, a thief is mentioned, an adulterer is mentioned. It concludes again with that theme of thanksgiving. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me. So you can almost imagine, you know, Jesus is, is framing the, the Pharisees' prayer according to Psalm 50, actually. And, and, it's, and like I said, it's, it's good not to steal, it's good not to commit adultery, it's good, you know, to, to avoid those sins, and it's good to express devotion to God through fasting, through prayer, through spiritual disciplines. All those things are good. You know what's not good? Bragging about them. Boasting about them. Building your spiritual resume upon those things. Making those things your foundation, which is what the Pharisee is doing. I'm praying for myself. You know, this is my foundation. This is what my righteousness is based upon. And what Jesus says very clearly, that's no foundation. That's quicksand. None of those things impress God. None of those things give us access to him. We get access by grace, and then because we love him, we avoid sin. We, we live lives of devotion to him. That's called sanctification. Now, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We really need to recognize the, the subtleties of pride in our heart, how easy it is to start looking at our successes and building, you know, and, and assuming that those are our, our foundation. It's like humility, right? You know, God wants me to, to be humble, um, and humility is something that every Christian should be striving for. But woe to that Christian who says, God, thank you for making me so humble. It just, there's something really, really, you, you know that that's not quite on the mark. And the same thing with generosity. I mean, all right, so this guy is, is boasting about how much he tithes. You know, God, thank you for making me so generous. And like humility, you know, at the, the moment you think you've got it and you've graduated and you've arrived, you know, you, you've failed. Um, so generosity, how generous is, is generous enough? Um, you know, this guy thinks he's generous enough. But, but we're not. Um, and, and so there's this ongoing dynamic of, of, you know, whatever gift we give, it's not to create a foundation. It's never to create access to God or get access to him. It's always a response to the access he's already granted to us. So, for instance, you know, Paul will, uh, will talk about the fact that, you know, gifts should be cheerful. Gifts should be thankful, not obligatory, not, none under compulsion. So when he's using his money, uh, the Pharisee is using it almost you know, as a way uh, to, to, to tithe on behalf of himself. He's, you, you could easily look at him um, as not only trusting in himself, that he's righteous, but tithing to himself. Uh, using his tithe basically to attain status. Status as a religious person, status before God's eyes. 
The same way that you or I would spend you know, money to go buy a nice suit, go buy a nice dress so that you have this status among people, so that you wear that and people respect you. He's using his tithe the same way you, know, you would spend money on something to get respect from other people. Um, we don't tithe to ourselves. Let me, let me spend a little bit of time talking about tithing, the tithe to God, um, you know, that the tithe being a tenth of our income, tithe literally means tenth. And, and what I want to convey, what I want to make sure that we come away with understanding is, that, is, is the question, who is the tithe given to? Who gets the tithe? Uh, the Pharisee, I think you can look at it, he's tithing to himself, he's praying to himself, everything's about himself. And we know that that's wrong. But what we're not sure about is, does the tithe go to the church? I mean, I think we, we maybe have a default thinking that, you know, you give to the church, you write your checks to the church, and, you know, so therefore we tithe to the church. Well, we, but we don't. The tithe is given to God. Your tithe, my tithe, it, it goes to God. It's l- like literally from Leviticus and Numbers. The tithe belongs to God. It's given to God. Uh, Leviticus 27 says that every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It goes to him. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. It belongs to God. It's given to God. The tithe is God's. Number 18. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance, which is a great place for us to just, you know, bounce off and look at what, what, how do tithes work? Whenever you put a gift in that basket that passes or however way you give to whoever you give, if you're a Christian and you're giving out of a heart of discipleship, you're giving to God. And then God has ordained this this sort of transfer. Those funds are used for for his purposes. Our possessions are given to us for his purposes. And the Old Testament economy, that meant, you know, the tithe goes... Uh, to God, God then gives permission to the priesthood, the Levites, you know, all right, this is your inheritance, these are your expenses, to do ministry to the people, to Israel, to the nations, etc. That, that's the expense account. Uh, and that's exactly how it works here. You give your tithe to God. I know you write the check to the tabernacle. You give your tithe to God through tabernacle, and then tabernacle uses that money, God's money, for his purposes in our community, in the world. Uh, that's how it works. And so um, I really do want to keep it clear in our heads who we're giving to. Because when we start thinking we're giving to the church, all kinds of weird stuff goes on in our hearts. We're tempted to think, you know, hey, I give this much money to the church. I, I deserve to be treated in such a way. I deserve to have my voice heard, you know, louder than maybe others because I give more. I mean, it just, there's so many crazy things that go on in our hearts and we think it's my money that I give to the church. Well, when I give a tithe, it's God's money that he's given to me that I give back to God and Tabernacle uses it. Um, and I think that's a, that's a better way of looking at our tithe and I hope that, that um, maybe is, is helpful for you too. I love uh, how Tim Keller explains the, the dynamics of tithing, especially under the new covenant uh, in a chapter 
of a book he wrote called Counterfeit Gods. And I want to let I want to let Keller uh, speak for himself, so I'm going to just read to you a paragraph out of this chapter on money as a counterfeit God, right, as, a, as an idol in our hearts. And he talks about tithing, and he says, there have been times when people have come to me as their pastor and asked about tithing or giving away a tenth of their annual income. And they notice that in the Old Testament, there are many clear commands that believers should give away 10%. But in the New Testament, specific quantitative requirements for giving are less prominent. And they often ask me, you don't think that now in the New Testament, believers are absolutely required to give away 10%, do you? And I shake my head no. And they give a sigh of relief. (laughs) And then I quickly add, I'll tell you why you don't see tithing, the tithing requirement laid out clearly in the New Testament. Think. Have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Usually there is an uncomfortable silence, just like what we experienced <laughs> Are we more debtors to grace than they were, or less? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us, or did he give it all? Tithing is a minimum standard for Christian believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. I want to commend to you this little brochure. It's uh, called Giving in the Gospel. It's basically, you know, another uh, Tim Keller summary that we've adapted. Uh, I think it's a great explanation. If you've got more questions about what is tithing, how do I, you know, I've got bills and debts, and I, I mean, I want to tithe, but I don't know how to get there. You know, it's just got some, some helpful information here. This is on the information tables in the foyer. Um, what I want to just continue talking about is this whole notion of who gets the greater grace. Who's experienced greater grace? Old Testament believers or us? If tithing sounds crazy to you, and I, I can remember it sounding crazy to me uh, as a new believer. I didn't have any background with the church. I didn't have parents who gave to a church. So as a new believer in college, I was confronted with this whole thing of giving. Uh, And tithing sounds crazy to a lot of people, maybe even some who are here. But I want to submit to you that tithing only sounds crazy to those who don't really grasp how crazy the gospel truly is. When you pause and you think about what the Father gave, what the Son gave, what the Holy Spirit gave in order to save us, you realize that is a crazy kind of love, to use a term. It is bizarre. It's so mind-blowing that the Father, think about the Father. Who, what, what was the Father's greatest treasure? His, his greatest treasure, the, most, the thing that he valued most in, in everything that there is, is the Son. The Father loved the Son more than anything else, and he gave his Son. 
He didn't give 10% of, of, of the affection that he had for his son. He gave everything. He gave his most treasured possession for us. And then think about the son. The son came, and he lays down his life for us, his entire life. Uh, he forfeits the, 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 the glory, the treasure of heaven, comes down, lives in literal, physical, material poverty, and, and then goes so far, you know, we were talking about this last week, then he goes to the cross and takes on our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy. He pays the debt of our sin. Um, we use sort of the older um, translation of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's familiar to many people, and it's, it's nice for somebody that comes into Tabernacle who doesn't, you know, really has maybe been out of church for a long time or isn't church, but, but somehow they do know that language of trespasses. So we, we think that's great. You know, people can come to Tabernacle and they don't feel like everything's alien. But you know that some of the translations use the language of debts. Forgive us our debts instead of, you know, as we forgive our debtors. And so sin oftentimes in the New Testament is pictured as a financial debt that, you know, a spiritual bankruptcy in us. And Jesus, as our substitute, took our place on the cross. He paid the debt for our sin. In fact, his last words, uh, one of his last words on the cross is, it is finished. That's literally tetelestai, a Greek term that uh, people used on a bill of sale to say paid in full. Literally, it's, it's, it's archaeologically, it's on these bills of sale from the first century, and Jesus is using that financial, economic language to explain the fact that he had paid our debt. So imagine, you've, you owe millions and millions and millions of dollars of spiritual um, goodness that, you're, that, that you owe, you know, that you've failed to pay. That's what our sin is. It's a missing the mark. It's failing uh, to, to obey. And so think of that and think of all that you owe. Jesus tells the parable, the one who owes millions of dollars, and his debt is forgiven. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that's crazy. For somebody to be forgiven millions of dollars, just because it's not literal money doesn't mean that it doesn't count. We're talking about something far more important than then money, we're talking about our sin, and then that's forgiven by Jesus as our substitute. But guess what? When your sins, your debt, your millions of dollars of sin debt is paid in full, do you know where that leaves you and me in our spiritual bank account? If your debts are paid, great. You don't owe anything, but guess how much you've got in the bank? Right? Nobody, I don't, I mean, now what? <laughs> I don't, want, I don't want zero in my, my bank account. Uh, and that's what's so beautifully glorious about Jesus. He's not just our substitute sin bearer. He's our representative law keeper. And when he was on this earth, he fulfilled all righteousness, just making investment, or, or, or deposit after deposit in his spiritual bank account, so to speak. And he's got millions and billions and trillions of spiritual assets and he credits those assets to you and me so that now I've got millions in the bank because Jesus transfers his righteous riches to me, to you, to everybody who trusts in him. And he asks you, do you want that? Do you want me to forgive the debt of sin? Do you want that? Do you want 
instead to be given millions of, you know, we'll call them dollars, of spiritual riches. Do you want that? And we say, yes, please. <laughs> That's the best sinner's prayer there is. Yes, please. Yes, please. And that is what happens in the heart of somebody who realizes, I, I need mercy. I need mercy. And that mercy is so crazy when you start to understand everything that has happened for us, that then you go, and God only wants me to give 10%. Wow, that's beautiful. That's glorious. Um, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we're told, is a deposit that God gives to us. Jesus gives us his spirit as a deposit. It can't be taken away. It's surety. It's a promissory note guaranteeing our inheritance that is to come, that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us where moth and rust will not destroy. God gives us his priceless spirit. So 10%, is it that, all of a sudden that becomes, you know, like that. When we understand how crazy the gospel is, how crazy wonderful the gospel is. And so um, as you think about tithing, think about the fact that that's so generously, joyfully given to us by the Father, by the Son, by the Spirit, that when Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver, it's because God is a cheerful giver. And God loves a joyful sacrifice because God makes joyful sacrifices. We're in the middle of a stewardship campaign, and the last thing in the world I want anybody to feel, sense, even get a, a whiff of is heavy-handedness, obligation, guilt, and manipulation. I don't want even a whiff of it. Because what we're talking about is joyful, sacrificial. It's gospel-centered. It's us receiving from Jesus and then just praying, Lord, what do you want me to give in response to that? Right? Let's talk about the tax collector, um, and then we'll wrap up. The tax collector, in verse 13, standing far off, you know, he, he doesn't presume, like the Pharisee, to, hey, I'm just going to come into God's presence. Here I am, Lord. Look at all that I've done. Instead, the, fair, the tax collector stands far off, and he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner mentioned that I think Jesus had the paradigm of Psalm 50, the very end of Psalm 50 in mind as he's giving words to the Pharisee. Do you know how Psalm 51 begins? Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so here is the, the tax collector modeling repentance for us. There's a, there's a very legitimate prayer of thanksgiving at the end of Psalm 50, as long as it's prayed from a heart of humility rather than arrogance and presumption over, hey, this is what makes me right with God. It doesn't. We're thankful for the gifts he gives to us. The tax collector is praying, and, and the dynamics of his prayer put him as the, the object of the sentence rather than the subject of the sentence. The Pharisee keeps saying, I, 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 look at all that I have done as the subject of this dynamic. And the tax collector recognizes all, all he can do is ask for mercy, to be an, an object 
of God's grace. It's a prayer of repentance. What's he repenting of? What's he sorry about? He's a tax collector. Probably most of us can, you know, are familiar with the dynamics of the tax collector. They were Jews who worked for Rome, and they were required by Rome to collect the tax that would be sent back to Rome. But, hey, by the way, anything you want to add to that tax for your own personal gain and graft, go for it. And so they were Jewish men who were betraying their own brothers and sisters by working for Rome and extorting money beyond the legitimate tax. They were greedy. They loved money. They loved power. They were manipulative. Um, all of those things that you want to tie into that. Uh, you know the whole Wells Fargo debacle, um, charging all of these people at, who would come and do their banking at Wells Fargo, this entire system, uh, systemic pressure, this this, uh, and, and it's been exposed, and it's a good thing that it's been exposed because right on down, you know, from managers uh, to you know, lower management, right down to the, the tellers themselves uh, are being told, well, if you don't meet your quota to sell more accounts and charge more fees for those accounts, you're fired. And so everybody's under this pressure. So some are victims in that, you know, but hey, uh, that's how... That's how corruption continues, is somebody says, well, I'm, I'm just going to do what I need to do to survive instead of taking a stand. But think about those people higher up who are creating that system and, and the, the love of money, the greed that's going on in their hearts. Think of, um, all right, uh, well, the Christmas decorations are already up, right? So um, who in the next month and a half, two months, is going to probably watch It's a Wonderful Life? I mean, you can't not do that. You've got to watch Once a Wonderful Life. Think about Mr. Potter. This is who the tax collector is. And think about Mr. Potter in tears, on his knees, repenting uh, to George for the way that he's treated George and everybody else and asking God for mercy. That's the tax collector. And so what you find is this tax collector has something in common with the Pharisee in that the Pharisee's praying about his money, he's praying about his tithing, the tax collector's praying about his money too. He's repenting of his love for money. He's repenting of what Paul said, uh, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And John Piper's comment on that is that the root of all evil is that we are the kind of people who settle for the love of money instead of the love of God. The tax collector's praying and repenting of his greed, of his love for money. The Eighth Commandment says don't steal. You know, when it tells us not to steal, it's also, in, you know, the other side of the coin, commending to us a life that promotes people's welfare and good, promotes their wealth. Tim Keller, again, says as a pastor, I've had... People come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. Almost every kind of sin. But I can't recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Pastors don't get 
those kinds of confessions. Why? Because greed is really difficult to see. We're blind to it. We're as blind to it as I was to the, uh, the dry cleaning tag that was hanging out the back of my pants that uh, I come in this morning, I'm up in the booth, and Jason McLean is you know, like, hey, turn around, let me get this for you. You got this dry cleaning tag, this big pink tag sitting right there. And if he hadn't pointed it out to me, I would have walked through the whole day, all these services with this ridiculous pink tag hang hanging you know, out of my back. You would have seen it, but I couldn't see it. That's how sin is sometimes. All right, so we, you know, we all have pride to confess, right? Lord, forgive my, my arrogance. We all have, have anger to confess. Forgive my anger. When's the last time you, were, you, were, you repented of, of greed? And when's, I mean, it's, it's, it's been good for me to be challenged by this. It's hard to recognize. God gives the... The tax collector, the grace to, to see that in his heart and to repent of it. And the wonderful thing, the, the, the turn, you know, the, the surprise, the shocker at the end of the parable is that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. And the one, the Pharisee, who thanked God that he was not like other men, like extortioners and unjust, unrighteous people. He thank God he was not like them. Jesus says, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And the only way to be justified, the only way to be righteous in God's sight is to humble yourself, to confess your need for grace, to confess our sins before a holy God and receive the blessing and the bounty and the riches of Jesus and to give thanks for it. That's how we're saved. That's how we come into the kingdom. That's how we get grace. And then you can imagine next week, tax collectors back in the synagogue rejoicing, got his head up, and God, I thank you that I am not the man I used to be. Greedy, loving money, building my foundation on sand, extorting and harming other people. I thank you that I'm not the man I used to be. Help me to receive your grace, your joyful, sacrificial grace, and help me continue to live a life that models and demonstrates that joyful, sacrificial grace to others. And that was, you know, the rest of the story. Money, God gives it to us, and he says it has a purpose. You know, God gives us possessions to be used according to his purposes, and when he gives us money, the purpose of our money is that its chief end would be our chief end, to glorify God and to help people enjoy him forever. That's why he gives us money. Um, when we look at money, we look at the glory of God on display. That's why Paul told the Corinthians that, hey, when you give this gift, it's going to result in many thanksgivings to God. And by their receiving your gift, they will glorify God because of your uh, the, the grace that God's given to you to give. I mean, that's the purpose of why we give. We give to God, so God will get glory. And when we think about the mission of money, um, we think about, you know, Tabernacle's mission. Part of that mission is missions in a more traditional sense. Uh, our missions conference last night, um, well, and, and this morning, uh, Mike and Sharon Cartarelli are here. Sharon uh, works with, with InterServe, uh, 
basically matching people up who have skills and talents who want to serve on the mission field, in particular among, in the Muslim world, and uh, talk to her and she'll, she'll connect you, you know, where you can serve. Uh, we had Joe Slater was here and he ministers with uh, RUF, Reform University Fellowship at JMU. Tabernacle supports RUF at JMU, at UVA, at Virginia Tech, at Washington and Lee, where the gospel is being preached to all kinds of college students, just like I was asking, you know, the ultimate questions, who am I, why am I here, is there a God, if so, what's he about, blah, blah, blah. And that's what Joe's doing, that's what we support. Uh, we got to meet Gunnar uh, Sahari, and Gunnar is Indonesian, and he runs um, a school, uh, he runs an orphanage, he has a seminary, and God is using him powerfully in Indonesia. Uh, we got to know him through Advancing Native Missions, a group in Afton who uh, we just have an invaluable relationship with them and are thrilled to hear about all the ways that God is using indigenous missionaries to accomplish his purposes. Um, we got to meet, our, our speaker was Randy Pizzino. He teaches pastors in Africa. We got to meet uh, Paul Robbins. He ministers uh, to, to Jewish uh, people all over the world. And, uh, and I want to mention, lastly, uh, Eric and Sarah Beth Knoll, uh, who were back there. And Eric uh, and Sarah Beth were sharing during our discipleship hour about their ministry uh, in South Asia uh, among just millions of people who just never heard about Jesus. So if somebody's going to be justified, you know, if somebody's going to go back to their home, go down to their home justified, like the tax collector, how's that going to happen? How are they going to, how are they going to hear about Jesus unless somebody is sent to them, is you know, Paul's, Paul's equation in Romans 10. And so when we give toward missions, that's what we're enabling. For the gospel to go out, for the, for the mission of the church to go and reach those who are unreached, it costs money you know, to fuel that, that enterprise. Tabernacle gives about 8% of our um, overall budget to missions, and we want to grow that to 10%. And, you know, without apology, a big part of this campaign is we want to be able to support more missions. We want to support our current missionaries, all 23 of them, at higher levels, and we'd love to see, you know, more church planting, more, more tribes, more unreached peoples, you know, reached. Um, and if we had an extra, you know, let's just say $63,800 laying around that's currently being paid on our building on this mortgage, if we just could have sort of had an extra you know, amount of thousands of dollars laying around, gee, we might be able to put that to some pretty awesome use you know, for the mission field. Uh, just something to think about in regard to why are we doing this, this campaign. But as we're looking at prayer, two men praying about their money, you know, um, and seeing the importance of, of humbling ourselves, I want us to continue to humble ourselves. This is a season, four weeks from here on out that I'm just asking us, uh, the entire leadership at Tabernacle, we're asking everybody who calls Tabernacle their home, just pray. Pr pray this prayer for our, our stewardship campaign. Pray, Jesus, what would you do through me to accomplish your purposes for Tabernacle Presbyterian Church? Help me to discern a joyful and sacrificial next step of faith that I might take in this campaign. Amen. Just just pray and see how God answers that. Like I said, no arm twisting, no guilt. Nobody's going to know what you give. Nobody's going to know if you give, except for our treasurer, one guy who I deeply respect, and he's going to keep his lips shut, you know, about what everybody gives. 
Somebody's got to know. You got to have your, 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 your tax statement at the end of the year. So uh, pray that prayer. And on November 20th, we're going to be asking, you know, the entire church, hey, would you consider making your commitment toward this campaign? Let's pay off the mortgage and free up a bunch of resources, not just for missions, but for, for ministry. We want Kyle to go full time. Uh, for uh, mercy ministry in our community, ultimately, you know, we want to keep multiplying. It takes money. Um, we have this devotional guide. We want to encourage you to start reading this if you haven't yet. This is going to keep you grounded in the gospel through this campaign. I want you to keep praying. We have a, a prayer vigil uh, that Jay and Denise Ford are, are organizing, and that is going to be on Saturday night, November the 5th. And they're uh, taking slots, half-hour slots you can sign up for in the foyer. Uh, one last thing, if you, uh, if you would like to help inspire and encourage and motivate, uh, you know, the enthusiasm through this campaign. Uh, if you would like to give a commitment early in advance of November 20th, we're having a dinner uh, on November the 3rd. That's a Thursday night. You're all invited. If you want to come and consider what would it look like for you to make your commitment ahead of time. If you want to come, uh, we need to hear from you by this Tuesday night. We need RSVPs for the dinner uh, after Tuesday's the cutoff. Uh, so that's if you want to be a, take a leadership role and help encourage and inspire and motivate through this campaign. Let's keep praying. Uh, let's pray for God to show us our need uh, for more and more grace. And as we see that grace, we'll respond to it. We'll see God's generosity. We'll become more generous people. And let's pray that God would help us to do that now. Jesus, nothing really... Um, happens uh, in our lives apart from you, and we uh, just pause now and confess our dependence on you, and we look to you to, to grow us in grace. We look to you to mature us and deepen our relationship with you, and certainly we look to you uh, to, to have a relationship with you. Uh, Lord, for any who have not yet looked to you and seen you as our substitute, um, bearing our sin and our a representative giving us riches of righteousness. Lord, would you help them to say yes, please, today, uh, even now. Lord, would you use uh, the grace of the gospel to change us? Would you make us generous through joyful means rather than through manipulation, rather than through arrogance and assumption? Lord, would you continue to show us your radical generosity that we would be... Um, children that imitate you. In Jesus' name.